Thanks again for having us come and speak and share our hearts. It's so cool to be uh, with people that are so receptive and so, you know, ready to hear. And it's just very, very cool. Um, it's actually one of the keys to receiving revelation. Paul said that the people that, he, that listened to him received the word from him, not as from men, but as from God. And so, not that you just take whatever we, we say without searching the scriptures, but if you, in your heart, believe God has called you to be here and you're listening for the voice of God, and you listen in that way and not think you're listening to just a man, it's powerful. Um, the word that you receive, Paul says, effectually works in you who believe it. Effectually works in you who believe it. So, um, us, us up here speaking from our heart, it is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus himself, the Christ in us speaking. And you, when you receive our words, not as the words of just men, but as the words of God, that word of grace will effectually work in you who believe. It's awesome. It's, a, it's just one of the secrets of, of uh, receiving revelation is to don't Look past the man, look past the person speaking and know that God himself is speaking. And then search these things out in the scriptures because if I can talk you into something, if Clark can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. If Bill can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. But if you hear from the Spirit and search the scriptures and see that in the scripture, nobody can talk you out of that. Remember the Samaritan woman? She heard Jesus himself speak to her. She went back to her town and she said, uh, oh, come see her, hear a man that told me all about my life and all about me. And so they came and then they heard Jesus himself speak and they said this. They said, we first believe because of what you said, woman, but now we believe because we have heard him ourselves." See, it's very important that you hear the voice of Jesus yourself so you can't be talked out of something. That you're rooted and grounded in the truth by the scriptures. And, and understand the scriptures rightly. Like Clark said, it's so important to know how to read the scriptures and to read them through the, the lens of the finished work of Christ, what he did through the new covenant, so that we can rightly divide the word. Like Paul says, there are those who are zealous, who want to be teachers of the law, zealous to be teachers of the law. Not this first, that the law is not for the righteous. It's not for you, the righteous who are in Christ. And they want to be zealous teachers of the law and not knowing the very first principle that the law is not for the righteous. So it's just so important to know, to know these, these things and how to, how to read the scripture. I want to share today about the new creation, speak about the new creation at this, at this time. And um, I want to try to uh, speak of the big picture first um, and try to see something that's um, the scope of this thing. Because when you speak about the new creation, it's just, it's just so huge. It's so huge that uh, if we don't see the big, the big picture, uh, I think we'll miss it. Clark said something that uh, I think this morning or yesterday, how it can be disorienting. Disorienting. This revelation of grace can be disorienting. That's so true because it is a revelation that is counterintuitive to the natural mind. The natural way of thinking hears the revelation of grace and thinks it's foolishness, Paul said. The natural man does not perceive the things of the spirit. It must be revealed. It is disorienting when that revelation comes because your natural mind is not used to thinking that way. It's a whole new way of thinking. That's why they said of the apostles when they came to the city that these are the people who have turned the world upside down. See, most of the preaching of the gospel that we hear in the churches today doesn't turn anything upside down. It's pretty much just a little bit different from some psychological counseling that you would get in some psychiatrist's office about behavior modification, really, about how to deal with your shame, your guilt, and how to deal with, you know, whatever. It's, there's nothing earth-shattering that would turn the world upside down in, in many of the gospels or messages that we hear in the churches today. I mean, it's pretty much right in line with the law, really. 
It's, it's, very, it's just a little bit different from the Old Covenant. And, and in fact, some denominations have the priestly robes and they have the, even the sacrifice called Mass. You know? I mean, it's very similar to the... It's no, there's nothing dramatically different. And what Jesus came to bring was dramatically different. So different that the Scripture says that it was a secret hidden in God and not revealed to the sons of men until Christ came. That's one of the ways I began to see this, this truth. When I burned out, I, got this, I did the same thing. I, had, I became a believer in 1976, and about 10 years later, I burned out trying to do all I could for God, teaching the scriptures, getting involved in the church, doing all these things, and I just burned out about 1985, 86, about 10 years later, and just put my Bible on the shelf and said, I can't live this life, I can't do it. Um, just like Bill said, I didn't check out on God. I checked out on, on religion. At the time, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I was just burned out. And that's when the Spirit began to whisper to me about the word mystery, the mystery of Christ. Study what Paul referred to as the mystery of Christ. The word mystery in the Greek means hidden truth. If you search Paul's letters, he refers to the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel many, many times in his letters. It's, it was one of his big revelations that it was, this was a truth that was not revealed to the sons of men before Christ came. And the Spirit kind of said to me, listen to what's being preached and taught in the churches. And, and so I listened, and it's like God was saying, do you hear anything that, they're, that they are saying could not have been said in the days of Moses? And what I was hearing was pretty much things that Moses could have preached. You know, the law, be obedient, judgment, um, repentance, sin, consciousness, all those things. But I didn't hear anything new. And just the word grace became kind of a, the word grace kind of was like a add -on, an add-on word. Like it was basically a law-based, performance-based message that I was hearing with the words grace tacked on at the end like and God's going to give us grace to do all this. And, and by God's grace, we're going to do it all. You know, by God's grace, he'll help you do this. By God's grace. And in effect, what we're doing is what Jesus said, do not do. He said, there, you know, no man takes a, takes a new shirt and cuts a hole in a new shirt and takes that patch and tries to patch up a hole in an old shirt. You don't try to harmonize the two covenants. You don't, you don't try to bring them together. You don't, you don't put on the old shirt and just take a little bit of grace and patch up the whole. But in effect, you, you, your whole teaching is works-based and performance-based and law-based because that's the shirt you have on. And you use grace just to patch up the whole. Jesus said, no, you throw that old shirt away. A new covenant has come. And you put a new shirt on, a whole new covenant, a whole new way of thinking. So anyway, I, I began to study this thing about the mystery and the hidden truth. And... It was just so exciting to, to hear the Spirit say, this is something that, this is what changed the world. This is what turned the world upside down. It's so different from man's way of thinking that the natural man would even think it's foolishness. Um, so let me share some thoughts about the big picture of how I see this, how, 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 how it began to break open on the earth when Jesus first came. And see this, see this, because I think this is so cool to see the big picture. Jesus referred to himself as a door. He said, I am the door. It's repeated in the book of Revelation where he says, I have opened the door that no man can shut, and I have shut the door that no man can open. Jesus himself is the door. A door where? Jesus is the door to another reality. It's a, another reality that he called the kingdom of God. It is the reality where he came from. He came announcing an amazing announcement. He said, change your minds for the kingdom of heaven is near, within reach. And he said, 
it is at hand, which means it is now. See, we talked about what repentance really means. What Clark shared about where we got the word repentance and how that was translated, it's so good because we, we got that translation from the Latin, which includes in that, you know, being, being sorry and, and uh, the word penance is in there, all of that wrong thinking about the, the, uh, the true Greek word of re- translated repentance is really does, it actually does mean just change your mind, just change your mind. And a good way to see if, if you're understanding repentance correctly is put that, put your definition of repentance in the scripture that says God repented. There's two or three verses in the scripture that says God repented. God repented and didn't, des- didn't destroy Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Well, if God was sorry for his sin, if God walked down the aisle and shook hands with the preacher, was God sorry for his sin? Was God, did God go this way and turn around and have a new way of living? No, he simply changed his mind. So, so if, you, if your definition of repentance cannot fit into that sentence, that scripture that says God repented, then there's something wrong with your definition of repentance because it's that simple. God changed his mind. See, see, repentance is not, it's not related to sin at all. Repentance is just a word that means change your mind. Just like Clark said, you know, you can say, look, we were going to go to McDonald's, but we, we repented, we repented, and we were going to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. That's a good repentance. You know, you just change your mind. And I wish we would start using that word more often in day-to-day language so people would get the idea that repentance is simply changing your mind. All right, so because we have, t- wed, we have wed sin, the concept of sin with the word repentance, when Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the first thing we think of is get your act together, stop sinning, because God is here. And he's not even saying that. When he says change your mind, it's in reference to the next thing he says. It's like if I said to you, if I said to Mark, uh, uh, Mark, change your mind. Don't take the van. Take the truck because the van doesn't have any gas. Repent, uh, repent, Mark, and don't take the van. Did I say that van? Yes. Take the truck. Okay. Now, if I said repent, Mark, don't take the van. There's no gas in the van. Take the truck. You wouldn't think, I got to stop sinning. You would think it's all what I said in terms of repentance or change your mind was in relationship to the next thing I said. Take the, don't take the van, take the truck. See? Well, in the same way, when Jesus said, change your mind, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, you're thinking the kingdom is not near. Change your mind about that, it is near. You're thinking that the kingdom of heaven is sometime in the future. Change your mind about that, it is now. See, he was announcing it had nothing to do with sin at all. He wasn't even talking about sin. He was saying, change your mind. I have the good news of the kingdom of heaven to declare to you. I have been sent to every city in Jerusalem and, and beyond in Israel to announce the glad news of the kingdom of heaven. It is not far away in time, nor is it far away in proximity. It is here now. The kingdom is here. And it was in him, inside of him. He said, the truth is among you. It shall be in you. When he finished his work, the kingdom would come within everyone who would believe. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven does not come like men think. It shall be within you. When the spirit is given, the kingdom of heaven will be given through the spirit. For Paul says the kingdom of heaven is in the spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit within. Another reality within. It's awesome. You can live on earth and walk in heaven. You can walk on earth and live in heaven. You are seated with him in heavenly places and he walks with you on the earth. It is the crowning glorious work of the Son of God that he has brought us into union with himself. The kingdom is here now in you. It's awesome. He brought his home to us. He brought his father to us. He wanted us to have his father He said, I ascend now to my father and your father and my God and your God. I did it for you. Now you shall be with me and I shall be with you always, even until the end of the world. Union. Sorry, I'm yelling so much. Like Clark says, you can't help. Union. He did it. You see, saints? We literally have been translated 
from the kingdom of this darkness, of this world, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. By your faith, he has plunged you in a great mystery into the death of Christ himself. The history of Jesus has become your history. You were crucified with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You did ascend with him. You are in union with him by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is of God that we've been placed in Christ, the scripture says. Religion cannot touch this. You have been so taken off of this world. Paul says, why do you live with rules like touch not, taste not, as if you're still living in this world? Know you not that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are the sons and daughters of the living God. You do now come from above and not from below. You are no longer from Adam, but from the last Adam, who is the Lord from heaven. It's awesome. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. You cannot see this other reality. You cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. You cannot enter this kingdom except through birth. Through spiritual birth. It's a miracle. It's an act of creation. And that's why we are sanctified. That's why we are holy. That's why we are perfect in him. That's why we are complete. Because it is an act of creation and not an act of evolution. We're not evolving into the sons of God. We're not evolving into holiness. We're not evolving into righteousness. We have been created by his word into a perfect, righteous son and daughter of God, an heir of heaven itself. It's awesome. We can be bold. We can be bold about this. You know, that Pharisees in the first century, they said, they called the early church the kingdom of arrogance. The Pharisees called the early church the kingdom of arrogance. Why? Because they declared with no apology that they, by a gift of God, were as righteous as God himself. And they could not bear to hear that. How dare you call yourself as righteous as God? He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And anything less is not the truth. Anything less, like Clark says, minimizes the suffering and death of our King. Our King did it. Our King did it. We boast in our King's work and proclaim him. He sits on the right hand of the Father till his enemies be made his footstool for his feet. And who are his enemies? Those whose God is their belly, who are enemies of the cross, who are legalistic and want to find their own righteousness in their own selves, who do not submit themselves to the righteousness of God through faith by the work of the Son of God. And when he comes, when he comes, the poor in spirit who have received him gladly will rejoice. And there'll, be, and there'll be no judgment for those who have believed on him. As Jesus said, he who believes on me has already passed from death and into life, and they shall not come into judgment. First John chapter 4 says, as he is, so are we now in this world. Therefore we have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we now in this world. If God were to judge you, you who have the Christ within you, Christ in you, the hope of your glory, if the Father would judge you, he would have to judge his own son. And his son is perfect. And his son has already been judged for me. It's awesome. It's genius. It's wisdom. It's genius. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. This is the message that turned the world upside down. The greatest words that ever were spoken on this planet were spoken by a man that Jesus said because of those words, he's the greatest man who ever lived. The greatest words ever spoken on this planet were spoken by a man who never did a miracle, but Jesus said that man is the greatest man who ever lived on this planet. 
And those words were, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The greatest words ever spoken on this planet. Jesus said, John the Baptist is the greatest of all men because of the message he brought. The message is what makes the man great. And John had the greatest message, and yet Jesus says, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. We all have that message now. And we're not just John of the race of Adam, but we are Mark and Trish from the last Adam, the Lord from heaven, a living, giving spirit who has made us new in him. No longer from below, but from above. Greater than even John and all of his righteousness can't even touch you. You can't even touch who you are. If you saw who you really were in the spirit, you would be scared of yourself. <laughs> you would. If, you, if God could pull away the flesh and show you the invisible you, show you what he sees, you would be shocked. No, no, that can't be me. That must be an or what is that? Who is that? Pulsating light. Glorious. You have this treasure in weak earthen vessels that the excellency of the power is clearly seen to be of God and not of yourself, but you, son of God, you, daughter of God, are just that, son and daughter of God. That's who you are. Because you have believed. He has raised us up from the dead. He has done what only God can do. Paul says God raises the dead and calls into being that did not exist. Only God can give life to the dead and create something out of nothing. That's God. That's what Jesus meant when he said about Lazarus. He said, did I not say, if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God. What is he saying there? He's saying, let me show you the glory of God. In that context, what he's saying is that let me show you the glory of God. What only God can do. Behold the glory of God. Lazarus, come forth. God raises the dead and calls it being that which does not exist by his own words. He creates something out of nothing. He created you by his own word, a new creation after his own image. He cut away the body of the flesh. He circumcised us that we would not be in our sin ever again. We're going to talk more about that tonight, what the circumcision of the flesh is. But saints, this thing is so big. It's so huge. You, you really do act like a madman sometimes. I mean, remember Paul? Paul was trying to convince Festus of, of this new reality that he was in, this new world, this whole new world he was in. And Paul was, before Festus, he was going, oh, oh, noble Festus, I wish you were just like me, except for these chains. I wish you were just like me. And he, Festus said, Paul, what's learning has made you mad? No, no, oh, no, Festus, I'm not mad. I wish you were just like me, except for these chains. I wish you were just like me, Festus. I wish you saw what I saw. I wish you knew what I knew. Joy unspeakable and full of glory on the inside of you. In the world we shall have tribulation. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. In the world you shall have people who hate you. In the world you shall have people who will come against you. If they came against the master, they'll come against us. If they hated me without a cause, Jesus said, they'll hate you. But that is not your reality. Your reality is in him. And, him is in, and he is in you. Be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation. For I have overcome the world and I brought you with me, Jesus said. You walk the earth as one who lives in heaven. Death works in you, but life in me, because as you're pressured by this world, the life of God in you gets out. Death works in you, but life in me, because as the pressure of the world comes on you, the Christ in you comes out and ministers to me. Paul says, death works in me, but life in you. As I'm depending on the Christ who lived through me and all these persecutions and sufferings and trials, death works in me. I'm getting a cross of rejection from the world, but that death is working in me, a release of life that blesses you. It's awesome. It's perfect. It's perfect. 
and his heart has always been just to be with us. Like Clark says, you know, he's, he didn't come here to modify our behavior. You know, just like Clark said, if God wanted to modify our behavior, he could do it in two seconds. Thank you. He could do it in two seconds. I mean, the military does it every day. The military modifies behavior every day and takes people and modifies their behavior by strict rules and by punishment and by tough discipline and by whatever. But they modify behavior every day. That's, that's the military. And we modify behavior every day. We send someone to jail. We stop him from doing what he was doing on the streets. We put him in jail. We modify that behavior. He can't do that anymore. He can't get what he wants to do. He can't get the drugs or whatever it is. God can modify behavior like that. He, he, he didn't come just to modify our behavior. He came because he wanted to be with us. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. We've heard that said to mean that he's up in heaven working on mansions and that one day I'll die and go to my mansion. It's been 2,000 years and he's still working on my mansion. No, he's not working on a mansion. He's sitting down at the right hand of God. God took only six days to make everything. He doesn't take 2,000 years to build my house. <laughs> he built a place in himself for me in three days. He said, after a little while, you'll see me again. I'm going. To I'm going. You can't follow me now, Peter, but you'll follow me later. I'm going where only I can go. I'm going, and by this... By this going, he was referring to his death. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. He said to them earlier of the temple, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise up another temple in three days. Not knowing, the scripture says, that he was referring to his, his body, for he is the true house of God that was raised in three days. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, is the word in the Greek, not mansions. Mansions was put in there by the King James Bible in the 16th century, or 15th century, no, 17th century. 17th century, because it was a, an appeal to the poor, the peasants, those who the king had authority over to give them hope of heaven, that one day they'll have a castle, they'll have a mansion. Every other place in the Greek, every other place in the scriptures, that Greek word is translated dwelling place. Only one time is it translated mansion to appease the peasants that they would have hope when they die, they'll have a castle like the king. Wake up, people. The Greek word is dwelling place. And I'm not talking to you, I'm talking about the world. Wake up. Wake up. He made dwelling places in himself. We have become living stones of the true temple, a habitation of God by the Spirit, Paul says. You see it? He went to prepare a place in three days and three nights. He said, he said, I go away, but after a little while, I'll come back. After a little while, after a little while. They said, what do you mean after a little while, after a little while? John's got all this written down as clues for us. What do you mean after a little while? After... And the Lord says, the world's going to rejoice and you're going to be sad. But you're going to see me again after a little while. And no man will take your joy from you again. He was talking about after three days. They would be glad that he was gone. The Pharisees were glad. He claimed to be able to save others. He cannot save himself. Come down and we'll believe on you. Mocking him. Even then. Even then. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Saints, the big picture is on that day, the whole world was judged. Jesus said, I go to the cross. And he said, now is the judgment 
of the world. I never heard that preached. In my 10 years of a belie- being a believer, never heard anyone preach that the cross was the judgment of the world. Never. And yet the, the Lord's own words, he says, now, as on his way to the cross, he said, now is the judgment of the world. Now the prince of this world is cast out. You see, God withheld his judgment until the children were protected. The children had to go through, had to go through cleansing first before he could judge the angel before he could judge Lucifer. Lucifer did not know the hidden wisdom. This is awesome. Lucifer thought he knew everything because he thought he was from the beginning, but he was a created angel. He did not know the hidden mystery. Had he understood the hidden wisdom, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the scripture says. He thought by killing the air, killing the sun, he would have the world. He did not know the hidden mystery. C.S. Lewis talked about the, the deep magic in his books, the Chronicles of Narnia, the deep magic. The witch, the witch did not understand the hidden magic, the secret that was hidden in God, that if a righteous one dies without sin, it reverses everything. And those who are unrighteous become righteous, and those, those who are seemingly righteous by their good deeds become unrighteous. Because you don't go through the only door that remains open. I open a door that no man can shut, and I shut a door that no man can open. What door did he shut? He shut the door of a covenant, a limited covenant he had with a nation called Israel that had a beginning and had an end. It was added to the Abrahamic covenant that was the true covenant of grace and faith. And he added that temporarily and provided a tiny little door, a little veil, into a cube, a perfect cube, a picture of heaven. And that door was open for a limited time, for a limited people, for once a year, a high priest could go through that little door and go and be in the presence of God of the universe in that perfect cube where the Shekinah glory above the Ark of the Covenant vibrated with glory such that if the high priest didn't do everything exactly right he would fall down dead in that perfect cube in the Holy of Holies. That was the only door on the planet where man could go and see the face of God. He shut that door. He tore the veil in two. He shut that door. No way, no how can a man enter by law, by sacrifices, by covenant of priestly robes or temples made with hands. But this high priest entered into the heavenlies himself, into the true tabernacle for us, for all sin, for all people, for all time. Hallelujah. It's awesome. Yes. And that door is open to all who believe. God actually out of there and came to us. Like Clark says, God is pressing into us in the same manner, in the same manner that you could not approach God in the same manner when he came on Sinai and said, move the animals back. The uncreated light is about to touch the earth. Uncreated light is descending into the earth. It's opening up at the top of Sinai. Unbelievable light, glorious thunder and smoke arose at the top of Sinai. God himself, the eternal God, was coming on touching the earth. He said, move the mountain. He said, move the animals back from the mountain. If they touch anything that I am on, they'll die. He didn't do that in a mean way. He was trying to tell them, you don't understand. Raw, uncreated power. God himself was coming. In the same way, you cannot approach God because of his holiness and his perfection, his awesomeness, because of the value the Father places on the blood of his only begotten Son. That work now flings open the veil and says, come boldly to a throne of grace, not of judgment, to find help and mercy in time of need. It is true. God is actively pressing into you now because it's all been done by his son. It's beyond our minds to grasp it. You know, because we just say, how can this be? How can this be? The old man has died and the new man has been raised in him. And now the spirit teaches us how to live by him, how to live by another within. It's a whole new way of thinking. See, we never, we never knew how to live by another from within. We were meant to live that way. We were created with a spirit 
so that God, who is spirit, could live inside of us. God never intended man to live independently of him. The deception in the garden was that you don't need God. You can just know right from wrong, knowledge of good and evil. If you had what he had, if you had the knowledge he had, you could be like God without God. That's the deception of the garden. Not as some preachers say that the deception of the garden is that Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. No, God wanted them to be like him. He made them in his image. David said, I will rejoice when I awake in thy likeness. God wanted Adam and Eve to be in his image. That was not the sin of the garden. The sin of the garden is that the enemy deceived them into thinking they could be like God without God. They, all they need to know is know what he knew and they could pull it off. That's the deception we're all born with. We are born into, with spiritual blindness because of it. Scales had to fall off of Paul's eyes because he was born blind to the reality that apart from God he can do nothing. The legalist, the Pharisee does not see this and they still are laboring under the same lie that they can pull it off, that they can do it. And that's why it's the poor in spirit that receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they see they're bankrupt without God. They can't do it. We were never meant to do it. Jesus said, the way I live, he said, the way I live is my Father dwells within me. He goes, the words I speak are not my words, but the words of my Father who dwells within me. And the works that I do are not my works, but the works of my Father who dwells within me. He said, this is how man was supposed to live. And as I live by the Father, so you too shall live by me. I'm going to accomplish something that will place me inside of you so that the Father that's inside of me will be inside of you and you inside of me. In John 17, he said, that is the crowning glory of my work. Father, that they may be one as we are one, I in you, you in me, I in them and they in me, one. You have that now. People preach that and they say, oh, this is Jesus praying for all the denominations to get together. Uh, here's, this is Jesus praying for an ecumenical movement that all the denominations will get, get together, that we'll all be one. No. He's not praying for churches to get together before the church is even born. He's not anticipating the church splits before the church is even born. And in fact, he, he defines his own terms. He says, Father, that, that they may be one. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean, Jesus? That they may be one, Father, even as I am in you and you are in me, Father, that I may be in them and they in me. It's pretty clear. He's talking about this oneness, not this. We get, we get this when we have this. Just like an orchestra, they, they tune the tuning fork. Everybody tunes the same note. We're all in tune. We get this. We get this automatically. Like Clark says, we'll all be saying the same thing, teaching the same thing, because it's all Christ. See? It's not us trying to all get together with our different doctrines and, you know, and all this stuff. No, it's, it's a spiritual reality of union. It's the most exciting life ever, ever. It's to live by him within, to know that, that you walk in his world as you walk in this world. He was, a, he was a man of two worlds, and now you have become a person of two worlds, no longer from below but from above, yet still in the world, but not of it. He said, I'll leave you in the world. You're not of it, but I'm going to leave you in it. I will not take you out of it. You'll be in it as my witnesses, but you're going to be walking the earth, but you'll be up from above. You know, the only thing that, the only people that go to heaven are the people that are from heaven. Now think about that, saints. Think about that. We're all, we're all worried about, you know, are we good enough to get there? Or, you know, have we dotted all our I's, crossed all our T's? Oh, you know, are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? Saints, if you're born there, you return there. Jerusalem above is your mother. Only those who are from heaven go back to heaven. And if you're from there, you're just going home. Thank you, brother. Thanks, brother. You're not trying to get there. 
That's why this is such a miracle. It's a, it's, it's a miracle of birth. It's a miracle of birth. A new creation. He made a place for us even as he made the Garden of Eden. And then he created Adam and then Eve. In the same way, he made the place again, another garden. This is the real garden of which Eden was but a picture. The real garden is Christ. It's all Christ. Christ is all and in all. Neither Jew, Gentile, male, female, Scythian, barbarian, None of those matter for, for all that matters is Christ. And Christ is in all who believe. All that matters is Christ. And Christ is in all who believe. All that matters is Christ. And Christ is in all who believe. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Jesus said, he who was born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. You are like the wind. People see you. They don't know where you're from. They don't know you've been born from heaven. Outwardly, you look the same. And they don't know where you're going. You're like the wind. Jesus tried to explain this to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, what if the Son of Man... Well, first he said this. He said, he said I, I, if I first tell you earthly things and you, and you don't grasp it, earthly things like the wind and childbirth, trying to explain this this mystery, and you, and you don't get it, because Nicodemus says, how can I enter my mother's womb and be born again? He goes, if you don't get it, if I tell you earthly things, how will you get it if I just tell you spiritual things head up, just straight up? What if I just ascend, in your, ascend to the heavens right now where I am now, Nicodemus? What if I were to ascend right now in front of your eyes where I am now, Nicodemus? What? He was telling Nicodemus that, Nicodemus, as I'm standing here before you, I'm in heaven. You can say that about yourself now because of him. You can stand before someone and say, you know, I know my feet are on the earth, but I live in heaven. And here, I've been moved to another place, translated. I'm in union with him. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. I am no longer from the Adamic race. Just to wrap it up, he terminated the entire Adamic race on the cross. He terminated the entire Adamic race. The entire Adamic race was terminated on the cross. And he began a new race, a new creation in his resurrection. When he raised Jesus from the dead, in Christ, a whole nation was born in a day a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Shall a nation be born in a day, the prophet said? Behold the mystery of Christ. In him, a whole new race was born. The last Adam, the beginning of a new race. All who would believe on him would be joined to him and pass from death and into life and be created new by the hand of God into his image. And just quickly... How does this get worked out in our lives? How do we manifest this new life that's within this heavenly life? It's certainly true that we're not gradually sanctified. It's certainly true that we're not gradually being made more righteous or gradually being made more holy. So how does it happen? How does it work out? The apostles taught that the way it happens is that we no longer look at the flesh no longer look at sin, for the law through the law is the knowledge of sin. But now in the spirit, we are to look at him. We set our minds on things above. We focus on Jesus. We look at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And as we look at him and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, a great mystery takes place, a dynamic that is of God, that is not of man. The real you begins to come out by the renewal of our minds. You begin to manifest who you really are by simply beholding him. Men see your good works 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Your light shines. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works. And men judge your good works and they say, this one is holy, this one is not. This one is more holy than that. This one is less holy because I don't see works. But God does not see that way. This is what happens. Someone believes the gospel and they become a believer. That can stay off right now. Oh, just that one's off. Just that, that one's good. That one's good. That's cool. Thanks, bud. A brother believes and has faith in Jesus and becomes a believer. This guy, these are, by the way, symbolic of three individuals. This guy believes by his good works, by his efforts, he gives to charities, he donates millions of dollars to hospitals, he gives his body to be burned, whatever. This guy rejects the humbling act of receiving the gift of righteousness and lives his whole life doing good works. This person believes. And what happens, the moment a believer believes, they're created new and they're given the very life of God. What happens with men, men see this as pretty white. And they feel like this must be a pretty good person. I mean, it's pretty white. It's pretty bright. Although this person, they feel like maybe by their good works, they're doing maybe better. It's that the way men look at things outwardly. As this person beholds Christ in their inner man, which, by the way, saints, is a lost art or lost truth in the body of Christ, is how to behold Christ in our inner man. The church is so... Paul, Paul said, behold him in your inner man. We don't even believe he's there. We don't even know he's there. How, how could, we behold sin in the flesh. The enemy has so tricked us up. That's the dynamic that releases the life of Christ in us is not a looking at sin or the flesh, but a looking at Christ. When the snakes bit the Israelites, God told Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up. A picture of Christ. He said, as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up on the tree. A picture of judgment. A picture of the bronze speaks of judgment. The, the snake has been judged. That all sin has been judged. And God says, all who look at the bronze serpent shall be healed. He didn't say, look at the snakes. Watch out for the snakes. Be careful of the snakes. Watch out. Step around the snakes. Learn about all these snakes. That snake's okay. This one's poisonous. Learn about the snakes. Learn, learn about the Look at the snakes. Step. No, he didn't say any of that. He said, forget the snakes. Look up. Look at the serpent, bronze on the tree. Look at my work, the finished work of Christ. See, when we behold him, a miracle takes place. A renewal of the mind takes place inside of us. And the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter as layers come off our minds, as revelation begins to kick in and we begin to see who he is and who we are. We begin to see the face of God. As Jacob said, I saw the face of God. And he got his true name, Israel. He began to see who he was. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, Peter, and Jesus said, and you, Peter, are the rock. We see who we are when we see who he is. When we behold him, we find out our name. We find out who we are. And so then suddenly we grow in our maturity and, we, and our beholding of him. We learn how to live by him, walk by his life within, and we seem like we're, we're so bright. And we are bright as his life is being manifested. But this believer over here, he got sidetracked by the enemy. And what began as an awesome, beautiful walk with God, he became buried in legalism. This is, this is someone who just is ready to throw the towel in. This one, oh, the world says, this one now, they're holy. This one, no, he, he, he smokes a little grass every now and then. I don't know about him. I don't think he's a believer because he smokes grass. He can't be a believer. Nah, I think he, I think he looks at pornography too. Yeah. The flesh is having a heyday with this guy because he hasn't been taught how to walk in the Spirit. He's been given more and more law. He's been told to repent when he's already repented. He hates what he's doing. He doesn't need repentance. If someone hates what they're doing, they don't need repentance. 
They've already changed their mind about it. They want to be free. They need to see this. They need to see the reality of a whole new world that's within them instead of the legalism that chokes them to death. But then see what happens. One day all three die. And this one, this one who thinks their good works earned them a place in heaven, suddenly they're seen as God sees them. And there's no light and no life. Then these two entered heavens. And where men judged this one and said, oh, this, this Billy Graham here is definitely going to have a place in heaven. But this guy, I don't think he ever was saved to begin with. I mean, look how he's acting. But this one and this one come before God. And this is how God has seen them the whole time. The whole time, God saw them exactly like that. Perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. Just this one was not manifesting what they could have manifested because the mind was not renewed. So steeped in legalism and law. The enemy, as Clark says, if the enemy can't keep you from getting the light on, he'll try to keep the light from shining. This one understood the way of grace, the way of a union, the way of rest the way of Christ living through him as the Father lived through Christ. And he bore much fruit. This one bore a hundredfold. This one only twentyfold. But he loves them all. Some will bear twentyfold, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. But they're all my trees, Jesus says. They're all my sheep. They're all my sons and daughters. Isn't that awesome?